Our text this morning will be in Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it we know that we cannot be justified by works. And yet every other religion, that's exactly what they're trying to do. Father, again, thank you for having mercy on us. Thank you for showing us grace through your Son. I pray that we would even walk away from here with a greater appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. The transfer that he made as far as his righteousness to our account. Father, I pray that we would not only understand grace, but we would walk in it. And that if there's ever a time that we come across the error of legalism in our life or in this church, that we would stand against it. Father, help us to be sensitive to the error that's out there. Father, help us to be sensitive to our own lives as to things that we're thinking about and how we believe that we're justified before you. I ask that you would now give us wisdom and understanding. I pray that in areas that we need conviction, that you would convict us so that we might honor the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I was thinking back, I guess it's been almost two months since we've been in the book of Galatians. And because of that, I felt like we should probably go back through and do just a little bit of review because, again, we want to make sure we're all on the same page. The good thing about Galatians is that it actually breaks down very easily into three bite-sized pieces. You have chapters 1 and 2, that's one thought. Chapters 3 and 4, another. Chapters 5 and 6, and we're going to be in chapter 5. But let's go back all the way to the beginning, chapter 1, and just, again, get a review of the book so that we understand why Paul is saying what he is saying by the time he gets to chapter 5, verse 1. Again, in Galatians 1, 1 to 5, Paul not only gives them an introduction as far as saying that he's an apostle, but then in verses 3 to 5, he actually gives the gospel, the good news. Notice this, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Right from the very beginning, Paul says, listen, this is the gospel. He gave himself for our sins. By the way, I trust that that still excites you. That Jesus Christ came and died for you. And that, and that by receiving him, you can be forgiven. You can be made a child of God's. But then immediately, look at verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. You're deserting Christ. I mean, that's a military term. What do you do to deserters? The Galatians were deserting Christ. The free grace, they were starting to look towards the law, circumcision, doing something for their salvation. By the way, I do believe that these were believers. He's talking to the church. But even in the church, legalism can creep in. And look, at Paul has a very strong condemnation. In verse 8, it says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which you have, we have preached to you, let him be damned. And he says it again in verse 9, let him be damned. Even if an angel... Toof, and he speaks to you. Go in a different direction. I mean, he's right there. Let him be damned. Hold to the word. Hold to the truth that you've already received. So Paul is very, very strong. These people are moving into the damned area. And then in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, Paul turns and he says, Let's, let, me look at, let me show you my life. And by the way, verses or chapters 1 and 2 are all about Paul's personal uh, it's a personal section. Paul defends his apostleship. And this is where he really gets into def defending it. He says, remember back to what I was. 
Look at this. He, he was a persecutor, verse 13. Persecuted the church of God. He was advancing in Judaism. He was advancing in that legalistic system. And then end of verse 14, and zealous for the traditions of my father. He was a persecutor. He was part of the system. And then, but look at verse 15, but when it pleased God. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's in your life. You were heading down one path, but God. He, he ran after you. He proved, he showed you, he opened your eyes to truth, but God. Every one of us is like Paul in some way before salvation, but God. God did something in your life. He showed you the truth of Christ. And Paul says, that, that's why I'm preaching this gospel. Wasn't that that I was raised with the gospel? I wasn't. I was against the gospel. I was even a persecutor of the church. And see, that's why he's bringing this up. He's saying, listen, this, this proves my apostleship because I wasn't, I wasn't moving in this system. It was God that uh, showed himself to me on the Damascus Road. And, and then he even goes even a little farther and he says, and look at chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, well, actually, if you read through there, and again, we don't have time for that, but basically what he is saying is, that, and once God saved me, I didn't, run, I didn't go running to the apostles. And it wasn't like I was being confirmed by them. Um, look at ver, uh, verse uh, 17. Now, uh, I'm skipping around. Actually, 17. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. His whole point is this. Uh, I was against the church of God. God saved me. And then from that point on, it wasn't like I ran to the Jerusalem church to find out my marching orders. I went out into the desert and God taught me. And this was all establishing his apostleship. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, the 14, uh, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. What he's referring to is the Jerusalem council. And it was actually there where Paul and Barnabas defended the gospel to the, to the apostles. The apostles weren't sure, and we're going to be looking at that in a, a moment. The apostles really weren't sure whether circumcision was, should be given to the Gentiles. And it was Paul that defended the gospel in front of the apostles. <laughs> okay? And then in, in verse 11 of chapter 2, he brings up one of the darkest moments of church history, and that is when Peter was playing the uh, hypocrite. And he was acting differently to the Gentiles than to the Jews, and he was given two different messages as though maybe, well, maybe you do have to become, uh, go into Judaism to really walk with God. And what did Paul do? And it says that even Barnabas, verse 13, was carried away with hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live like in the manner of a Gentile, not as a Jew, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? I mean, he confronted the apostle Peter. <laughs> now think about how big that is. That is huge. And basically Paul says everything, all this to show the Galatians that I am indeed an apostle sent from God. Okay, so that's really Galatians chapter 1 and 2. Actually, one last verse in chapter 2, verse 16, because it summarizes the good news, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Christ. Even we have believed in Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. He's saying that to Peter. So again, chapters 1 and 2 are Paul's personal plea that he is indeed an apostle. In chapter 3 and 4, he moves from a personal to a doctrinal. He says, listen, let me tell you about justification by faith. So Paul defends God's message of justification by faith. And again, justification means this, that we are declared righteous before a holy God simply because of what Christ did on the cross and I putting my faith in Christ. That there's nothing else that justified me, that declared me righteous, that declares you righteous before God. But that simple act that Christ died for us, our, our sins were a, a curse and placed on him. And when we receive his sacrifice, his righteousness, he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And by faith, that's what justifies me. That's what justifies you. And do you see the intensity in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, that Paul has, oh, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed. And he asked them a number of questions. This Verse 2, this only I, I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? I mean, he's like an interrogator. Basically this, how dare you? Knowing the truth, how could you turn from the one that gave you eternal life? Or at least our turning. In fact, we're going to have to answer that probably next week. Can a person lose their salvation? But again, he's asking them questions. And right after the questioning, and you'll notice five or six of them in chapter verses 1 to 3, he goes right to the Old Testament patriarch, Abraham. And he says, listen, let's, let me show you Abraham. Because you guys are thinking that it's the law, or maybe you're thinking that it's the law, that you know the things you do that can make you justified. He says, look at Abraham. In verse 6, and again, that's a very familiar verse that appears in Romans. And also originally in Genesis, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Think about Abraham. He was declared righteous and that was, as he goes on and says, 430 years before the law. See, Abraham was justified not because of the law. The law had not even yet come. And even then, look at verse 8, it says, The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel of Abraham before all, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. What do you mean the all? The all refers to the Gentiles. That someday all nations would be um, blessed through Abraham, not because you keep the law, but because of faith. That's because Abraham believed. And as we believe, we're justified. I mean, that's such a marvelous truth. Do you realize every other religion thinks they have to do, 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 and keep doing? It's slavery. Every other religion is slavery to works. They have to do, and they never know to the very end whether it was good enough. And yet we bask in grace. We bask in the fact that, no, everything for our salvation was accomplished on the cross. Christ is enough. He was able to say on the cross, what? It is finished. Redemption, atonement has been completed. And so Paul goes through and and, and then he goes back in verse 10. He says, but let's look at the law. I mean, what does the law bring, verse 10? A curse. A curse. A curse. Verse 16, now to Abraham, his seed were, were the promises made. It was a promise. Even though this law, verse 17, was 430 years after Abraham. I mean, if you want to go timeline, here's Abraham 400 and some years later. Here's the law. Abraham was justified back here, though, because he believed God. How do we get saved? Keeping the law or believing God? Paul says, no, like Abraham, just like the guy that you keep, you know, because the Jews uplifted Abraham. No, he believed God and it was accounted. We believe God's word of what the gospel is and believe, and that's how we get justified. But then he says, verse 19, well, what's the purpose of the law then? Basically this, it's a schoolmaster, it's a tutor, it's a guard. It shows us our need. You are condemned. You need Christ. It keeps us as we're in chains. By the way, this is real important. It's not to say that the law is bad. Because really the law is a reflection of God himself, his character, his will. I mean, we still obey the moral law. But the idea is this, we can't keep the law to earn salvation. Every one of us breaks it continually, moment by moment, as we, li- as we live. So again, it's not that we throw the law and say, well, the law is bad. We have to make sure we have... Because some people would say, ah, we're not under the law. We're not under anything. We can do as we please. No, that's not correct either. But here Paul is saying, look at verse 22, all are under sin, that the promise of faith in Christ, Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. And if you believe, chapter 326 tells us all the things that come to us. We become sons of God. Verse 27, we are baptized into Christ. 28, we are united as a body and there's equality. And finally, we are an heir. And he really carries that through to the end of chapter, or verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. And really, the rest of the chapter 4 is just Paul pleading with them, verses 12 to 20, pleading, like a pastor pleading 
Come on, think this through. Walk in faith. Don't walk in works. In fact, he even gets very uh, passionate in verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? By the way, have you ever treated someone an enemy because they told you the truth? Sometimes we do that. We tell someone the truth. Or have you ever been treated as the enemy because you told someone the truth? By the way, if we go and tell someone the truth, you know, actually Galatians 6 says that we should go with gentleness and humbleness. But you know what? If, if you're a truth teller and you go with gentleness and humbleness, you are showing love to that person. It is the person that says nothing that really hates the person. I mean, let's say a person is stumbling and falling and in sin and you say nothing and you let them stay in that pit. And for some, maybe for some it's because they haven't received Christ and now they're going to hell. So Paul just please, he says, you know, you're treating me like an enemy because I told you the truth. It's the truth tellers that say it gently and humbly that are the true lovers. If I love your soul, I'll tell you the truth. If you love someone else, you'll tell them the truth. So again, he says it very, very, very passionately. And then finally, he gives an analogy. Uh, Hagar and Sarah, and one was by the law, and one was uh, representation of the, you know, Sarah and Isaac, and belief. Belief. It was, God did that. It was miraculous, just like God saves you miraculously. So you have chapter 1, it's a personal plea to his apostleship. Chapter 2, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I am, I am declared righteous because of what Christ did, not because of what I do. It is not trying, <laughs> trying to get to heaven. It's trusting in him. Is that where you're at? Have you trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? Received Him? Renounced your sin? Renounced your self-righteousness? As Paul said in Philippians, count it as dung. Lord, I can't do anything, but I see that you have done everything and I put my faith and trust in your sacrifice for me. Now the great thing about chapter Galatians, now he moves in chapters 5 and 6, and now he gets very practical. He says, based on the doctrine of justification by faith, now let me show you some things, how it plays out in your life on the practical level. So again, this is the practical side of the, the epistle. And we'll spend quite a few weeks, we're going to be breaking it down and actually taking a few rabbit trails, because I think, I think, I think the human heart so quickly goes to self-righteousness. And I don't mean just the unsaved. I mean the saved. I think there's a lot of problems in the church at times because we start getting self-righteous and judging each other. And we forget grace. We forget what brought us here. Okay? So we'll take a few rabbit trails, but we'll try to stick to the passage, the passage in Galatians primarily. Well, let's see here. Standing firm in our freedom. That's the main point of verses 1 to 6. Standing firm. He says, stand, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Stand fast. The New American says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. It was for freedom. He, he purchased you so that you would be free. Now, again, we have to understand what that means. There are Christians running around feeling that they can just do anything they want and sin in any way they want because God has made us free. And that is not what Paul is saying. But again, many, perhaps most of the Galatians were saved. See, that's why he's saying this. He has purchased your salvation. We've just got to... See, that's a very important element here, that these people that he's talking to are saved. This is not an epistle like an evangelistic epistle. This is to a church. Actually, church is. This word stand fast is in the imperative. In other words, stand firm. He's commanding them to do this. Which tells me, since it's in the continuous sense, that we have to be on the alert to stand firm. Sometimes we get lackadaisical. We think that we're really not in a war in the, uh, over the truth. But he says, stand firm. In other words, plant your feet, as it were. Develop conviction. Understand that there's a war out there and the war is over truth. In fact, when you think of the word stand firm, you know what I think of a Roman soldier? Think about the Roman soldiers. Back then, they were the terror of that part of the world. Again, when a Roman soldier faced the enemy, they simply locked their shields together and what? Planted their feet. 
Can you imagine the, the hordes running after them? And just before they were there, just as they came up over the, you heard this click. And all they did is they clicked all their shields together. And then they stood. In fact, they didn't always stand in a straight line. One of the studies shows that uh, sometimes they, stu- they stood in an, uh, like a, like a, a, a sawtooth pattern. So they would actually stand like this. I'm saying there would be like 15 or 20 this way, 15 or 20 this way, 15 or 20. It wasn't just straight. And as these, as the enemy came, and not only, it, it kind of funneled them down. <laughs> and they would be mowed over simply because they weren't standing straight. They were being crushed even from behind because it started wide and then ended short. And this Roman soldiers just stood with their spears, with their shield locked together. That, that shows us, I mean, that gives us an indication also how we need to stand. We stand against the enemy. There is an enemy, and the enemy wants to tell the truth, I mean, tell the error. And we need to tell the truth. But not only that, we need to stand together. Great strength in number, if we're all together. Like soldiers, we need to be convicted, have deep convictions. Again, there is truth and there is error. There is a war out there, and we need to stand we need to be able to defend it. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go through Galatians. Because this error is still alive and well. In fact, it's, it's more alive today than it's ever been. And we need to stand for the truth that salvation comes by grace alone through Christ alone. Right? Salvation comes through grace alone through Christ alone. Why? How? How? How does, that, how does it channel to me, though? By faith alone. It's through Christ. It's all alone, though. See, there are some in Christianity who call themselves Christian that say, well, no, it's, it's by Christ, but then we have to add stuff. I mean, that's the Roman Catholic Church. You have to add. No, that's error. That's, that's a truth that will lead a person to hell. It is by grace alone, through Christ alone, because of faith alone. And we must be willing to fight for that. That's, otherwise, we're allowing legalism. Philip Ryken writes this, We cannot be saved by, through any other religion except Christianity. I know some of you would say, Oh, that's not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, the reality is it is a religion. But it is a relationship. It's a relationship with the, the King of Kings. He goes on and says, The other religions, such as Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, Mormonism, are all slave religions. Some of you know people who are in those slave religions, Judaism or Islam. They're slave religions. You have to do, you have to keep doing. But again, he goes on, he says, the same may be said even of other versions of Christianity, such as Roman Catholicism and liberal Protestantism. Why? Because they add works to faith as a basis for our righteousness before God. They bring bondage to, the, to human regulations because ultimately they're about what we do for God and not about what God has done for us in Christ. So really you can add up all those, whether it's Mormonism or Jehovah Witness, whether it's Islam and Hinduism or Buddhism, whether it's Roman Catholicism or just liberal Protestantism. It's all slave religion. In fact, maybe that's a good way. If you could picture your friend, your relative, your parent, if they're, let's say, maybe around this area, Roman Catholic, just picture them as a slave in their religion. They're not free. They're not free. Martin Luther, and again, Martin Luther, he came from the Roman Catholic Church. Now again, Martin Luther was not perfect. There was some, there was some of his doctrines that were wrong. I mean, he hated the Jews. But that's wrong. It doesn't make everything he says wrong. It just says that part of it's wrong. But this is what Martin Luther, and again, he had to deal with legalism. He himself, a monk, tried to get to righteousness or become righteous before God through what he did. But he says this, quote, Those who try to achieve the status of sons and heirs of the righteousness of the law or by their own righteousness are slaves. They will never receive the inheritance, even though they work themselves to death with great effort. Sometimes we look at a person and we say, they are so religious. They are so sincere. They are so, maybe we even use the word godly. And you're referring to someone, let's say in the 
in, in, the, in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, sure, that's the whole point. They work themselves to death. They have great effort. That's the whole point. For they are trying, he goes on, for they are trying, contrary to the will of God, to achieve their own works, what God wants to grant to believers by sheer grace for Christ's sake alone. By the way, I, I know that I always get flack. I, some of the things I've gotten flack over the years for, the two big ones, you know what the two big ones are? When you speak of Roman Catholicism, and when you say women have to be in submission to their husbands. Boy, that's too late. And, and by the way, I am thankful for at least this year, I am free to be able to say that without somebody coming in and arresting me and going off to jail. Now, that may happen in a couple years from now. But the point is, is you know what? If, I'm not, if I don't tell you what I'm talking about, if you just think, well, he's talking about Islam and, you know. No, no, I'm talking to a lot of our friends. Some of my family are in a slave religion. And we look at them and we may say, boy, they just look so godly. They're so committed. Surely they can't be going to hell. Remember, it's a slave religion. It's all about works. That's why they do everything they do. So we have to be careful that we bask in the grace of Christ, but then say, I'm free, but you're not. And I understand why you're not, and I understand why you put so much effort into it. But again, to be accepted by God, it's not about your works. It's not about how many times you fast. It's not how many times you take Mass. It's not how many times you go to church. We all say that. And yet we'll look at someone like that and say, well, how could you ever say that that person would ever be damned? Look at the second part of verse 1. Stand fast. Be like a soldier. Why? In the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Christ has made us free. Free in Christ. That's the fill-in if you want to do it. Free in Christ. You know, as Americans, we love our freedom, don't we? You're not going to tell me what to do. Well, that's not good either. But I think Tuesday was, uh, was one of the reasons you saw such a big vote and everything that happened. We want our freedom. We don't want the government telling us what to do. But you know, even though we love our freedom, our physical freedom, you know what's even more important than that? Our spiritual freedom. And that's what Paul is talking about here, our spiritual freedom. Christ has made us free. He has freed us. And I'll just give you a few things he's freed us from. First of all, our sin. Jesus Christ set us free from sin. And it's guilt. He broke the chain, Romans 6 talks about. So not just our sin, we no longer have to sin, but the guilt associated with it. Because you know what? Before salvation, I might have felt guilty because you know what? I was. I was guilty. By the way, I still feel guilty when I sin. You do too, right? See, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we found forgiveness and freedom. Back when I was at uh, First Portland Baptist Church, we used to sing this song, Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Do we sing that still? Do we? I, I'm, I'm not a real good singer, so I don't really pay attention. But, you know, that's, that's a good song right there. You thought I was going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to say it. See, I could say, at Calvary. But then every time my wife says, just, you know, lower your voice. See, on the cross, Christ took our curse, the punishment that I deserve because of my sin. He took the curse. He paid the penalty for my sin. Boy, we, I say it so often, I, I forget the depth of what I just said. You are free. You, you don't have that curse. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not have that curse over you. He died on the cross to atone for my guilt. He offered his life as a just payment for my sin so that we would not have to be condemned under God's wrath because of that sin. Man, I mean, just that alone, you know, doesn't that give you joy in your heart? I mean, there's a lot of chaos and nonsense that are, is happening in our world and in our nation, isn't there? But if you start really focusing on what Christ did for us, that I don't have to carry that weight and the wrath because of that weight of sin. I am free. Free from sin. Free from death. Now again, he's talking primarily spiritual, but also spiritual death ends in physical death. That's why physical death happens. 
Jesus Christ has set us free from death. Romans says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. You know, when Christ raised, was raised again the third day, He had a, a body, a, a new and living and glorified body. And if we're in Christ, someday we will get a new and living glorified body. Isn't that great? Some of us are feeling the pains of our body. And someday, if the Lord does not come any time in the next few years, we will really taste that and some of us will be dead. It's because our body just wore out. Now, some of us wear our bodies out quicker, but the point is, is this, it's because of uh, sin. That's why we have death. In fact, Romans 6 says this, The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, it's in Christ. Jesus Christ has set us free from death. Has set us free. He has brought me from death to life. He is someday going to even not only change my soul and spirit, but also my body as well. And then finally, Jesus Christ has set us free from the devil. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, he broke the stranglehold that Satan had on humanity. In fact, it's, there's an interesting passage in Hebrews. It says, for verse 14, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He destroyed that power that he had over us. And released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Satan had us. Christ died and broke that as well. He he freed us from our sin and our guilt. He freed us from death. He even freed us from our archenemy, Satan. We are now part of his family, Christ's family, not your father, the devil, like Jesus said in John 8 towards the religious leaders. So again, these archenemies, as one man said, the, the tyrants of humanity, sin, death, and Satan, are all been destroyed, all been neutered. <laughs> No longer have effect on me. I'm free from them. You are too. See, seeking to be justified by the law, though, and I mean, getting back to the Galatians and the consequence of damnation, when we break it, puts us back under those tyrants. <laughs> he says, you're free from all that. Why would you want to go back to the law that only condemns you? John Stott says, we are free from the crushing yoke of the law of thinking we can win acceptance with God by our own obedience and keeping the law. That yoke. Think of, you know, in the old-time farmers, you would yoke oxen and, you know, together they're the burden. Or Pilgrim's Progress, the burden. That crushing burden. And the more you understood righteousness as an unbeliever, the more burden there was. And yet Christ has set you free. We're free in Christ. You know, not only that, but look at the last part of verse 1. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't be entangled. The fill-in is this, enslaved to works. Free in Christ, enslaved to works. Don't be entangled. That word entangled brings up images of a web. You ever in the summer see a spider's web and something gets caught and all of a sudden it just becomes entangled in it. You know, when it comes to works righteousness, that's how it is. You almost like take a piece, but then it's easy to get entangled. Now again, he's, when he says the yoke of bondage, he's talking about, uh, actually in verse 2 he mentions it, verse 2, the circumcised, being, become circumcised. Verse 3, circumcised. Look at verse 6. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. So the yoke of bondage is not just the law, but more specifically circumcision. That's what these Judaizers... Judaizers, again, remember this. They were people that came to the Galatian churches from Jerusalem. And they were pushing the law and saying, listen, if you're going to be a true Christian, if you're going to be... And these are all Gentiles. If you're going to be a true Christian, you've got to be like Judaism. You've got to come under the law. You've got to get circumcised. And so this was the point that Paul was talking about. Now again, circumcision to a Jew was critical. In fact, many times they're called the circumcised. We saw that, I think, in Galatians 2, verse 7. 
See, this was, an, this was the outward mark. It was given to Abraham back in Genesis 17. It was the mark to show the Jewish people that God's covenant, God's love, God's sovereignty was over them. That, that's what distinguished the Jews from everyone else. They were circumcised. It was huge. It was a huge... If you weren't circumcised, you were out of the camp. It showed you didn't want anything to do with Israel. But again, circumcision for the Jewish people was just to identify who they were, partly because of the coming Messiah. But it never was supposed to save them. But unfortunately, the Jews thought, no, this is what saves me. It's because I'm circumcised. I keep the law. They didn't really know their Bible that well. They should have gone to Genesis 15 where it says Abraham believed God, right? But this thing about circumcision. See, the Jews did not see it as a reminder of God's gracious, sovereign blessing on their life. They saw it as a way of self-righteousness. This is that yoke he's talking about. Don't go back under the yoke. By the way, we know that... All right, we know this, that, the, that circumcision did not save. If you just keep your hand in Galatians. I know I'm running out of time, but Galatians, go over to Acts 15. This is the Jerusalem council. This is where Peter and Barnabas come up to Jerusalem to defend this fact, that the Gentiles do not have to get circumcised. And in the council, verse 6, Peter stands up. Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word. And Peter preaches to them. Peter teaches the other apostles that are there. By the way, verse 12, Barnabas and Paul speak, and then James wraps it up in verse 13. But go to uh, verse 10. So you're Acts 15.10. Now therefore, why do you test God? This is Peter speaking. By putting a yoke. This is why I'm here, because I just want to show you this. A yoke on the necks of the disciples, i.e. Gentiles, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Why would you put a yoke on them of circumcision and keeping the law? We couldn't even bear it. I mean, it was hopeless to us. Why are you trying to make it hopeless for them? By the way, just so you know the conclusion, it says that they sent them... They sent a letter out with the disciples, verse 23. And look at what they wrote in the letter in verse 24. Since we have heard that some of you went out from us, have troubled, excuse me, who went out from us, have troubled you with words, unsettled your soul, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such command. So the apostles made it right and sent it out to the church. Listen, you don't have to keep the law and you don't have to be circumcised to be part of the church. So that was Acts 15. A lot more could be said, but let's just go over. Let's go back to Galatians 5. The point is, is that even in history up to that point, even before the Galatian letter was written, the apostles at Jerusalem had already decided, had shown that from God's point of view, you don't have to be circumcised as Gentiles. You don't have to keep the law. But this brings up a real interesting question for you. What is your mode of justification? How are you seeking to come to God? Again, either you are justified, declared righteous before God, partly by what we do for ourselves, or we are justified exclusively by what Christ has done for us. And you know, we can apply that in a lot of different ways. How do people think they get justified? Well, the Jews thought it was circumcision keeping the law, but how about this? Some think they get saved because of the frequency of their personal devotions. By going to church, by giving to church. Some even think they're justified because they made a decision. They walked an aisle, raised a hand, prayed a prayer. That doesn't save you. Christ saves us. I'm not saying that that's all wrong. All I'm saying is people think I did something. Again, you go into other religions, it might be the five pillars of Islam or the seven sacraments. I'm doing something. Works, righteousness. I've been baptized. I've been confirmed. Works, righteousness. Justification must come by grace alone through faith alone. And some of you were rescued out of those systems, right? Would you ever want to bring everyone back into it? Do you know to the extent you were rescued? I don't think sometimes we realize to the extent. That it's grace. In fact, I was talking to someone last week, and and he just made the comment. He said, you know, we just don't understand grace to the depth that it was given to us. That's true. 
See, I stand as a Christian. My standing before God depends entirely on what Christ has done for me. Entirely. Nothing to do with me. Well, I really want to get to the last three things very quickly. It's just going to be bang, bang, bang. But why is working for your salvation, this works righteousness, fatal? And Paul answers in verses 2, 3, and 4. Just like this, bang, bang, bang. Number, the first one is found in verse 2. Why is it fatal? Why is this works righteous, human religion fatal? First of all, because Christ will be of no benefit to you. No benefit. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised... By the way, he's not saying if you're circumcised. Some of you are circumcised as men. You were circumcised when you were eight. Eight, 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 eight days old, whatever. Isn't that when they circumcise a kid? I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> I just know they had this little rubber thing around or whatever. <laughs> okay. But the point is, is this. I uh, delete that from the tape. Um, the, the point is, is this. He's not saying, well, if you're circumcised, you can't be saved. He's saying, listen, if you get circumcised, it's part of a requirement of salvation. And Christ does you no good. Christ will profit, will benefit you Nothing. In other words, with Christ it is all or nothing. To receive Him by faith is to admit we cannot save ourselves at all. We must let Him do all for our salvation or He will do nothing. That's huge. It's not like I can have a little part. Or as William Perkins said, the old Puritan, we must, He must be a perfect Savior or no Savior. You know, I told you the story a while back of the guy who had a baseball. <coughs> And uh, I meant to bring one in, actually, but a baseball. And, and it was actually autographed by Babe Ruth. And uh, he heard that it was valuable and that people were looking for it. He could make some money on it. And he took it out. But before he put it on, I don't know, eBay or whatever, before he sold it, he got concerned because he noticed that the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the signature, <laughs> thank you, was fading. And so he took a pen and B A B E R U T H. The autograph that was perfect, something that was priceless, became worthless. <coughs> Same with Christ's sacrifice. You try to write over that, you try to add to that, then he will benefit you nothing. It's that simple. Remember that. It doesn't matter if the person talks about Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if the person says he loves Christ. If he's adding to it, be a... He's adding. Christ will benefit you nothing. Number two, because you will be a debtor to keep the entire law. Verse three, and I testify. That word testify is strong protest. It's like Paul saying... This is where he's getting really intense. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. See, the dilemma is it's not just circumcision. There was 1,300 laws that they had to keep. Every one of them. Perfect. Not not a mistake. You see how intense he's getting? He's protesting against them. You want righteousness by circumcision? You're obliged to keep the entire law. And who can keep the law? Well, only one, Christ. And because he kept the law actively, that was his act of obedience throughout his life, he kept the law perfectly so that when he died, he was the perfect lamb. Again, I say, that's why he didn't just come on a weekend and die. You know, come on Friday, died, uh, buried, rose again three days later, done with that. No, no. He had to live a perfect life so that when he went to the cross, he was the perfect sacrifice. The curse that Galatians 3 talks about, that we talked about months ago, the, the cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things. That's the whole law. Cursed everyone who does not continue in all things. Chapter 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. So the principle is that unless it's perfect, law will do you no good. In fact, there was a story about a, an old rabbi. His name was Gamaliel II. Nothing to do with the guy in the scripture. 
But anyways, this old rabbi was reading the Old Testament, Ezekiel, and he came across this one passage that says that a man is just and does what is lawful and right. Just and does what is lawful and right. And the old rabbi weeped when he read that because he said, who could be just and keep it perfectly? No one. Unless you're the perfect son of God. See, he wept because he knew nobody could perfectly obey the law. And James 2 said the same thing, right? Remember James 2, for whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in yet one point, he is what? Guilty of all. And finally, a third reason why you don't want to have self-righteousness and it's fatal because you will be cut off from the grace of Jesus Christ. You will be cut off from the grace of Jesus Christ. He says, you have fallen from grace. And I'm going to leave you there. Boy, that's a, bad, that's a hard one to leave you at. Because doesn't that sound like they, are, they become unsaved? I, I will say this. I do not believe that he is talking about eternal security in that particular place. He's referring to it this way. You have to make the choice. Is it self-righteousness? Christ plus works or Christ alone. And you need to decide and choose. If you choose Christ plus, you have fallen from grace. You have to choose. You can't be a Christian and believe it's Christ plus. By the way, if you ever believe that it is Christ plus, it actually shows that you're not a believer. Because you have chosen and you have chosen eternally poorly. Again, I do know this, that Philippians 1 says, being confident of this very thing, some of you could quote it with me, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. There are a number of passages we'll look at next week that definitely show that once a person is saved, they are eternally saved. But Paul's saying this, listen, I don't know who you are. I mean, he knows the Galatian church, but he's writing this to many churches. But just let me say this, that if it's Christ plus, and you believe that, then you have fallen from grace. You, that you never had in the first place. That grace has eluded you. You have made the choice, and it wasn't by... In Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. I, the, the only way I can, and this is a kind of a poor illustration, but it's kind of like uh, next week, the kids go to Super Bowl, and you're going to say, how does this apply to, all right, follow me on this one. On Friday, they're going to get here. Everyone's going to get here, and there's going to be two vehicles at least out there. There's going to be a bus, and there's going to be a van, because we have like 50-some kids going. And they're going to have to decide what they're going to do. Are they going to get on the bus or the van? And they can maybe go up to the bus and look in and start talking to their friends. And, are you going on the bus? Are you going on the van? You know, they always, you know. And then they're going to sit down here and we're going to pray with them. And then we're going to release them and they're going to have to go. But at the point that they make the decision of, I think I'm going to go on the bus. And they get on that bus. You know what? They are committed to be on that bus for the rest of the night. That's the bus. You're not going on the van now. And I think what Paul is talking about here in that last is, listen, I've given you all the information. But now you have to decide, is it going to be Christ plus or Christ alone? And once you make that choice, that's where you're locked into. You're locked into there. Because again, once Christ starts to work in you, he will not let you go. But the choice is yours. Well, actually from eternity, it's, it's election. But the point is, on this side, the way it is, you make the choice. Just like that kid, oh, I think I'll go on the bus. All right, you're locked in there from this point on. And I believe, as you will study this out next week, you're going to see, as a believer, I can't lose my salvation. Why? Because it was given to me by Christ himself. But again, we need to know that it's Christ alone. And if a person buys into this Christ plus, it really shows they never understood the gospel in the first place. Anybody that buys into work salvation doesn't understand grace. To think that I could add anything to God's wonderful salvation shows that I don't understand in the first place. So if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, thank the Lord for that, because he has opened your eyes up. And every time that you see something that is opposed to that, are you willing to be stand strong? Are you willing to act like a soldier? Hey, listen, you know what? A soldier went into battle knowing he could actually die. We may someday have to face martyrdom. But you know, right now, what God asks you to do? Be willing to at least be offensive. 
The, the gospel is offensive. And be willing to stand strong, even though that the person you're speaking to might be offended, might get upset with you, might even hate you, but the reality is that's the life of a soldier. When the enemy was coming, they didn't say, oh, and we just love you guys. There was a battle and there was going to be death. There was going to be a conflict. And whenever there's conflict, someone's going to get upset. And as we go out and are sharing the gospel, that is a very offensive message to all the slave religions. Because what they are thinking is, no, I earn my way. And what God has told you is, no, it's only by grace alone. So as we stand right now, let's stand. I trust that from your heart, you're just really going to sing out with the gratefulness that God has shown you the truth. This is a prayer request that actually came in while we were in service. Um, Erin Took uh, is pregnant, and she has gone into labor. It's five weeks early. So you can be praying for Erin uh, and that, uh, for safety for the baby and for her. You know, I just wanted to quote the la- uh, one of the verses in Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved, what? Through grace, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. <laughs> Think of Aaron. And then not of yourselves, it is what? Gift. Free. Gift. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not of works. Not of any works. In fact, it's just what we just sang. We stand in grace. We've been forgiven by grace. Not by human endeavor. The blood of the Lamb. So again, I trust that that is exactly what's... That, that's how you came to God. It wasn't some works-based religion. It's just the pure grace that he has shown us through his son. Father, again, we thank you for reminding us of these truths. Lord, I ask that we indeed would not only remember, but it become a solid truth in our life that we are only standing because of grace. It's not human endeavor. Purely by the blood of the lamb. Father, I thank you that you opened our eyes that we could see and to receive. And I pray that we would have a sensitivity to those around us who do not know. Lord, help us not to become callous. And Lord, also help us not to rationalize other religions into somehow thinking they have the truth when they don't. They are in slavery. Lord, help us to be about the business of seeing people freed from their slavery because they've received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I also pray for Aaron now. I ask that you would protect her and the baby. Lord, as she delivers, that, um, again, that you would just give wisdom to the doctors. Lord, again, we pray for both of their lives, that you would be glorified through what happens, but we do pray for safety. Again, we thank you for these many things. We thank you that we can pray. We really love each other by praying for each other. And help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.